Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. We're going to be in the middle and end of chapter 2 tonight. But if we were playing a game of family feud, some of you don't know what that is, that's fine. And we asked, who is the evilest person of the 20th century? Who do you think would be number one? Adolf Hitler. He would be number one, wouldn't he? And you know why. He was the dictator of Nazi Germany from 1933 to 1945. And he believed that Germany, quote, would regain our health only by eliminating the Jews. Codename the final solution, the Nazi government sought to completely exterminate the Jewish race from the face of the earth through mass genocide. Through the SS, that's the military organization that oversaw Uh, the genocide, Hitler was ultimately responsible for the execution, the murder of six million Jews and five million non-Jewish people. Those are numbers that we can't even comprehend. A horrific evil that should never be forgotten or erased from the pages of history. If you're going with us to Israel next fall, one of the most moving Uh, visits that we'll get to make is a trip to the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Yad Vashem is Hebrew. It means a place and a name. And I got to go to this museum in 2017. It includes 27,000 unique artifacts donated by Holocaust survivors and their families that provides a, a face to many of those who lost their lives in the Holocaust. It's hard to imagine someone more evil than Adolf Hitler, isn't it? But if we were playing Family Feud, a couple other names might come to mind. Somebody doesn't say Hitler, maybe they would say Joseph Stalin. Exactly. Dictator of communist Russia, Soviet Union, from 1922 to 1952, his power-hungry and aggressive leadership and communist political policies resulted in widespread famine across his country, resulting in the death of millions of his own people. He was responsible for about a million executions with people within his country. And some estimate that up to 20 million people lost their lives because of his policies, the famines that resulted. He was not a good man. Maybe third, someone would cite Saddam Hussein. He was the president of Iraq from 1979 until 2003. Really, he was a dictator with the president's title. He had minimal ethical boundaries. He used nerve gas and mustard gas on his own people. There's a group of people in Iraq called the Kurds, the Kurdish people. They're an often oppressed minority group. The An Alful campaign was a genocide campaign against the Kurdish people, his own people. 100,000 were killed. His reign was filled with bloodshed as he invaded other nations like Iran in 1980 and Kuwait in 1990. He was an evil man. When I think of those three individuals, it reminds me of a verse in our passage tonight in 2 Peter chapter 2. You can just listen to this. The second half of verse 17 says, For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Utter darkness, it really means darkest darkness. He's not talking about earth. He's talking about eternity. Peter is saying that in eternity, the darkest darkness has been reserved for them. The worst 
possible eternal punishment, eternal conscious torment in the worst possible way for all of eternity. Jude 7 uses the phrase eternal fire. It's not a pretty picture. Actively burning, but never burning out for all of eternity. Revelation uses the phrase the lake of fire. Friends, it's not a a pretty picture of eternal condemnation. But who will receive this worst kind of punishment for all of eternity? If I asked our culture, Hitler would be at the top of the list, wouldn't he? If I asked us, we would probably say the same thing. But the them in the second half of 2 Peter 2.17 is not genocidal dictators. So then who is it then? Who is Peter talking about? Who is the them in 2 Peter chapter 2? It's false teachers. God has reserved the darkest darkness, the worst kind of eternal conscious torment for false teachers. Doesn't that just seem a little bit backwards? Don't you think that someone who ends the life of 11 million people should suffer the worst kind of suffering in hell for all of eternity? Not according to Peter. Now, I'm not seeking to minimize the evil of a Nazi dictator. Instead, I think that you and I often have too soft a view of false teaching and false teachers. Now, God's the judge. God is the agent of eternal wrath. You and I don't get to decide who gets what punishment. That's God's call. But Peter is clear within our text. The darkest darkness, the worst kind of punishment, is reserved for false teachers. Why? Because the greatest form of harm is spiritual deception. If a false teacher leads someone astray and prevents them from hearing and responding to the good news of the gospel, that person could live a happy life, but their eternal destination is horrific. What if you and I were forced to choose between the two? Would you rather have a pleasant, happy life and a miserable eternity or the opposite? I think if we are honest, we'd probably rather have a miserable life and a pleasant eternity with God. See, the false teachers in Peter's day, they were so off their rocker that they were leading people astray to a false gospel. They were incurring on themselves and their followers the wrath of God. Do you want the worst of God's wrath? Then ruin someone's eternity. That's what Peter's saying. Then lead people astray. Pretend to speak for God, but speak for yourself. But when we look at our world, when we look at our culture, our culture honestly, could care less about false teachers. In our postmodern society, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. We can all have our own truth. We can all believe what we want to believe. We can all have our own spiritual leaders and live in our own spiritual reality without any semblance of objective reality or absolute truth. In our culture, humanitarian and kind people who are at the same time leading people astray towards a false gospel They're not condemned, but they're praised. Now, if we don't understand the danger of false teachers, how they live and what they teach, then we might run the risk of looking like our culture, just being apathetic towards false teaching. Or even worse, we could be complicit in leading people astray, seeing the false teaching and just not saying anything. Our text tonight is intense and it's hard. 
exegetically, theologically, it would be really easy just to skip over this and move on to chapter 3. But I'm convinced there's a lot that we'd miss if we skipped over these verses tonight. So I'm going to read the first paragraph in our passage. I'll start in chapter 2, 2 Peter, the second half of verse 10. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version tonight. Bold and willful they, that's the false teachers, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Let's pause there. There's a lot in this passage. I will not be able to answer every theological question or textual question that this text raises tonight. But here's a quick outline of where we're going to be. The first paragraph outlines the conduct of the false teachers, and the second paragraph outlines the content of their teaching. Those are probably the first two blanks on your handout tonight. The conduct of the false teachers, and then the content of their teaching. So we're going to start with the conduct. Verse 10 Interesting phrase that it starts out with in the second half, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Blaspheme is an unfortunate translation. In my opinion, I think slander or insult might be better suited here. And the glorious ones, Peter's talking about church leaders, pastors, the people in Asia Minor who were preaching the gospel, the true message about Jesus. He's saying that the false teachers slandered and insulted those who are teaching correct theology. But then the comparison is interesting. He compares these false teachers to angels and says the angels, even though they have a right to slander or insult these false teachers, because the angels are in the presence of Jesus, they don't dare open their mouths and offer something slanderous against these false teachers. Why? Well, Peter says because of reverence for Christ. They wouldn't dare cast judgment or say something insulting in the presence of Jesus. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't think I've ever made that connection before. I've never connected slander or insults or even something like gossip to a, a reverence of Jesus. Because the angels, they were before Jesus' throne. They knew that Jesus was listening. So they were very careful with what they talked about. They did a very good job of guarding their tongues. Meanwhile, the false teachers could care less if Jesus was listening or not. The first conduct of the false teachers, they had loose lips. Loose lips. I'm sure that the greatest application of loose lips for young adults today is a sin that none of us struggle with. Gossip. Talking about people in a negative way behind their back when we have nothing to do with the problem and nothing to do with the solution. We should think twice before we throw somebody under the bus or gossip about someone else's sin or pass along a rumor that might sound true, but we don't know is true. We're more like the angels than we might even realize. 
No, we're, we're not before Jesus' throne actively in his presence like they might be. But remember, if you know Christ, the third person of the Trinity lives inside of us, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully aware of everything that comes out of our mouth. He even told his disciples, surely I'm with you always, even in the end of the age. Our reverence, our worship, our respect for Jesus should have a far greater influence on what comes out of our mouth. I know that some here tonight have loose lips. How do I know? Because I can hear how you talk. And I hear from others the damage that gossip has in our relationships. It tears apart friend groups. It tears apart small groups. It tears apart churches and young adult ministries. It rips through family relationships. Friends, we have to have conversations like Jesus is listening, because he is. We need to give our conversations the Philippians 4.8 test. Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it worthy of praise? Is it excellent? I'm sure I'm missing a couple from Philippians 4 verse 8. Are the things that are coming out of our mouth honoring to the Lord? If not, then we should bite our tongue. If we have an issue with someone and we aren't willing to go to them and address the problem, then we shouldn't bring it up with somebody else. We should bite our tongue. We need to ask, would Jesus take part in this conversation right now? Or would he say, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be talking about this. Maybe that's not a way to talk about a brother or sister in Christ. We've got to be careful to guard our tongue against gossip. Blue slips are the first sign that Peter mentions of false teachers. Look again at verse 13. I'll start in the second half. They, the false teachers, count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. The key to this section is that phrase, eyes full of adultery. The false teachers, they were overcome by their own lust, their own sexual appetite, and they counted it pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, they weren't even trying to hide their sin under the guise of darkness. They were sinning in plain sight during the middle of the day for everybody to see. No shame in their sexual immorality. But the phrase before, they revel in their sin while they feast with you. Pretty sure I know what Peter's talking about. Up until 250 AD, the Lord's Supper, the communion celebration, was not a little cardboard wafer and a tablespoon of stale grape juice. It was a feast. They would enjoy a feast together. They actually called them love feasts. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, particularly 17 to 22, when we understand that the, that communion in the first century was actually a meal, 1 Corinthians 11 makes a lot more sense because some people were starving and some were getting stuffed. Some were not getting anything to drink. Others were getting drunk. The church in Corinth had some major issues when it related to communion. But to hear what Peter's saying, the false teachers reveled in their pleasure while they enjoyed the feast, while they enjoyed the communion celebration. They were trying to seduce women during the Lord's Supper. Their eyes were so full of adultery and extreme immorality that they turned what Jesus had intended to be one of the most important practices of the local church into the first century version of Tinder with the goal of enticing unsteady souls a sexual enticement. Their sexual appetite was so unhindered 
that they use the Lord's Supper to satisfy their sinful desires. So second conduct is indulgent eyes. Indulgent eyes. Maybe some of you have wondered, why don't we celebrate or remember communion, the Lord's Supper, regularly at young adults? Because young adults isn't a church. We're part of a church, but we're not a church. And I hope that each one of you prioritize being involved in a healthy church, a Bible teaching, gospel preaching church, even more than you prioritize being here on a Sunday morning. But even though we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper on Monday night, it's possible for someone to do the same thing as the false teachers here. Someone could come to young adults with a very below board ulterior motive to find someone to seduce for their own fulfillment. Now, let me clarify what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. If you're single, a place like young adults is a great place to meet a future spouse. And let me tell you, love is certainly in the air these days. <laughs> if God's given you the desire to be married, then I believe that's a God-given desire. It's a good thing. In terms of finding someone who's like-minded, who has a relationship with Jesus and is running hard after him, I can't think of a better place to find somebody than here on a Monday night. Now, should meeting a spouse be your primary motivation for being here on a Monday night? No, not the primary motivation, but I know it's in the back of the mind for many of you, and that's okay. But that's not anything like the false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. They weren't, denying, they weren't desiring a spouse, they were desiring a one-night stand. On the other hand, if someone comes to young adults with the desire to seduce someone for their own sexual fulfillment, then that individual has two options. First, they can repent immediately, or second, they can leave immediately. There is no place for that here on a Monday night. That is the behavior of a false teacher. That's the second type of conduct, indulgent eyes. Look at the back half of verse 14. They have hearts trained in greed. They're cursed children. Trained in greed, it means that the teachers were trained in financial manipulation. They were working to exploit money from innocent people. They've been trained in how to do the exploiting. And then in the next couple of verses, Peter outlines a man named Balaam. Ever heard of Balaam before? Not sure the last time you read the book of Numbers, but here's the context. Israel is suffering for, uh, they're suffering 40 years of wandering in the wilderness following their exodus from Egypt. Remember, they didn't trust the Lord. They didn't believe that he could deliver them from the hand of their enemies in the land. So as a punishment, they're wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And while they're wandering, God begins to go before them. They begin defeating their enemies and the nations did not like what they saw. They were terrified because they saw that God, they saw Yahweh was on the side of his people, and they knew that they were doomed. So one of the kings of the evil nations, Balak, is king of Moab, he knew of a guy. He was a prophet of God. His name was Balaam. He wasn't an Israelite. We're not really sure where he came from, but he was actually a prophet. And when he spoke a curse, when he spoke a blessing, it would come true. But he developed a reputation as a prophet who could be bought. So Balak thought, well, why don't, we, why don't we show up to Balaam's house with a big briefcase of cash and say, I'll give this all to you if you go curse God's people, the Israelites. Now, Balaam knew God's not going to tell him to curse his own people. That, that's, 
dead on arrival. It's bad news, right? What Balaam should have said was, no way, I'm not doing that. But instead, he decides that he wants to go with him with one caveat. I'm just going to say whatever God wants me to say. It sounds noble, but it wasn't. He wanted to find a way to bless the people and say what God wanted him to say and also keep the briefcase of cash. Getting the money was his highest priority. So while he's on the way to the top of the mountain from his house, top of the mountain to overlook the people of Israel to to lay a blessing or curse on them, he's riding his donkey. And in the middle of the, the path appears the angel of the Lord. And the donkey can see the angel, but Balaam can't. The angel has his sword drawn, ready to kill Balaam. And the donkey was smart and moved off the trail and three times tried to avoid the angel of the Lord. All three times, Balaam grabs a stick and whacks the donkey. And I'm sure it was not a gentle pat either. Then in Numbers uh, chapter 22, verse 28, here's how that account picks up. Let me read there. You can just listen. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand. I would have killed you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey? I'm which you've ridden all your life long to this day. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Yes, the donkey talked, and this is not an episode of Shrek. (laughs) But as the text continues, Balaam goes on to have a conversation with the angel of the Lord, who calls his way perverse before God. God alone knew Balaam's heart. But the reaction of the angel of the Lord gives us a clue that Balaam's heart was not pure. His desire was to get paid, to fill his piggy bank and financially manipulate the people. Now, if you keep reading in the next two chapters, Balaam says exactly what God wants him to say and blesses the people of Israel three times. It's like, oh, cool, Balaam did his job. That's great. Well, you read the rest of scripture, even this passage in 2 Peter the description of Balaam is anything but scathing. Why? Well, if you keep reading in Numbers, in Numbers 25 and then Numbers 31, Balaam intentionally lured the people of Israel into sexual immorality, into intermarriage with the people around them that then lured them into idolatry of other gods. Throughout Scripture in 2 Peter, he's used an example, as an example of a false prophet, a false teacher who exploited people of money and lured people away from, other, from their God into idolatry and immorality. If God uses a donkey to rebuke you, it's not a very good sign. Peter compares the false teachers to Balaam, who are exploiting people of their money for personal and financial gain. So third conduct is malicious motivation. We've seen this happen throughout church history. We see it happening today. Pastor Jeff, last week, talking about the Reformation, referenced the indulgences introduced by the universal church to shorten one stay in purgatory, something that we don't see in Scripture. We certainly don't see indulgences in Scripture, but the benefit was that we could build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. 
It's a dangerous way to use the Jesus card to make money. We see it today with faith healers, televangelists who have a healing hour on TV, who hold healing rallies, and the sick, the lame, the cancer-filled, they come and receive healing. And if the sick just have enough faith and give enough money to the ministry of that particular faith healer, then they'll be healed. But the poor, the suffering, the sick people are emotionally manipulated because they have such a deep desire for healing that they'll do anything that they can. Meanwhile, these false teachers pad their own wallets with the promise of healing while never delivering on their promise. But there's another modern example that I see today that might hit a little more close to home. It's a relatively new phenomenon, and it's called the short-term mission trip. Allow me to talk in general terms, not specifically about those in our young adult family that are serving on mission trips. Some people play the Jesus card to fund a vacation with a sprinkle of Jesus with their friends, sending letters to family and friends, raising money to support their mission trip. And since it's a mission trip, then relatives feel compelled to help pay for some of the expenses. Did they pray about going on the mission trip? Did they evaluate if it's effective and if it's fruitful? Is the trip partnering with a local church, a local ministry organization? Is it gospel-centered? Is it working to advance Jesus' kingdom, or is it just humanitarian? Is it financially wise? Statistics suggest that 1.5 million Americans go on an STM, a short-term mission trip, every year. If each trip costs $1,500, which I promise is low, that's a two-plus billion-dollar industry. It's a lot of money. If someone's going to go on a mission trip, there's a couple things that we need to do. Things that we encourage our team to do as they go with Mexico, with us to Mexico next year. Somebody's going to go on an STM. First thing they've got to do is pray. God, is this what you want me to do? Is this what you desire? Second, they have to evaluate their motivation. Why do I want to do this? Why am I going on this trip? Third, You've got to get wise counsel from somebody you respect, family, spiritual leader, young adults leader, pastor. You've got to evaluate the effectiveness of the trip. Sometimes Americans with a lowercase savior complex can do more harm than good internationally. If you're going on our Mexico trip, you're reading a great chapter about this for homework for our next meeting. Please don't forget to do your reading. And my last suggestion would be don't support race the entire balance. As a young adult, contribute at least some of your money, own money, to the trip. We just got to be careful that we don't lay down the Jesus card on the table for our own benefit and our own financial gain. So the false teachers are dangerous, not just because of how they live their life, but also through the content of their own teaching. That's what we see in the next paragraph. Keep reading with me in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. 
For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. For if, after they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. In Scripture, springs, streams, rivers, they're often used as a metaphor of life with God. Think about Jesus calling himself the living water in John 4. Think about the river of life in Revelation flowing from the throne in the New Jerusalem. But instead, Peter calls the false teachers dry and waterless springs. Their teaching is void of life. It has no semblance of a relationship with God. What good is a dry and waterless spring? Nothing. What good is a dry well? Nothing. That's what he's calling the teachers. But there are also mists who are driven by a storm. We know exactly what this looks like. Picture a cloud on a windy or stormy day. It's never going to stay put. It's going to follow the wind, go wherever it blows. And the same was with the false teachers. There was no substance to their teaching, no depth to their message. They followed the wind of culture, the commands and expectations of cultural morality rather than biblical morality. They followed the wind of their own flesh. Peter says they, quote, speak loud boasts of folly. (laughs) In other words, they sound really impressive. They speak with incredible rhetoric. They might be listened to by tens of thousands of people. They're impressive orders. They speak with great confidence and great authority. Don't confuse a preacher's message with their method. Don't be tricked by a good speaker who has great speaking skills while they're proclaiming a false and fluffy message. Their teaching had no substance. That's the first content of the false teaching was no substance. They lacked any substance, any semblance of the true message of the gospel. I think today of preachers who who proclaim a happy, feel-good message, but they don't say anything ever about sin or death or punishment. They just talk about God's love. I think of a dangerous doctrine, a false doctrine called universalism, a belief that in the end, everyone's going to be saved. No one will suffer eternal punishment. Why Why is this dangerous? Well, just look at our text. Does Peter provide an opportunity for universalism? Absolutely not. Peter preaches with the certainty of eternal judgment. And the false teachers in our text were preaching the opposite, that you could live with freedom because there was no eternal judgment. That's how, what he says in verse 19. They, the false teachers, promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They promised them freedom because they were preaching a message that was devoid of judgment. That's our second Content is no judgment. Universalism, it's certainly attractive because it eliminates any need for evangelism and missions. Why share our faith if everyone is saved anyway? It eliminates the wrath of God, which in my opinion turns the true God into a false God, not the same God. It might be convenient to reason away eternal judgment and wrath, but the Bible's clear that God's judgment is coming while the false teachers preached a message that was devoid of judgment. But you can imagine the implication, right? If there's no judgment, 
then do whatever you want. You can have Jesus and you can sleep around. You can have Jesus and you can get drunk on the weekends. You can have Jesus and you can exploit people of their money. You can have Jesus and you can literally do whatever you want. It doesn't matter because there's no judgment. They preached a message of no rules. That's our third content of the false teaching. No rules. They allowed a both and sort of Christianity. You can follow Jesus and... You can do whatever you did before. It doesn't matter. No judgment's coming. Live for you because God doesn't care. Friends, that's not what God's word teaches. When we turn to Jesus, we let go of our old way of life. There's no fence sitting in Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that when we follow Christ, we're going to live a perfect life. Sanctification, the process of growing to look more like Jesus, can look like two or three steps forward and a step back, but The trajectory of our life is running after Jesus. Instead, the false teachers claim that the trajectory didn't need to change. You could follow Jesus and you could still keep living just as self-centered as before. Frankly, it's a false gospel. They were slaves to their own sin, incurring on themselves the strictest possible judgment. Look again at verse 20. For if After they'd escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them to have known, never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. These might be two of the toughest theological verses in the text, because here's the big question. (laughs) After reading this, were these false teachers saved at one point? and then they lost their salvation? Or were they never saved in the first place? Did you catch that in the text? You asked the same question. You should be after reading that. At face value, it sounds like they were saved and they lost their salvation, or at least turned it in. Even the Greek word for knowledge is the Greek word epignosis. Peter uses both in 2 Peter. Gnosis is general knowledge. Epignosis is a deep knowledge. It's often a salvific sort of knowledge. Some scholars would say that these individuals were saved and lost their salvation. Personally, I don't agree. Here's why. John 10, 29 says that no one is able to snatch the sheep from the Father's hand. I don't think it's possible for someone to lose their salvation. Think of Ephesians 1. When you become a Christian, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Think of Romans 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't think you can lose your salvation. Instead, I think the if at the beginning of verse 20 is a hypothetical if. The false teachers, they thought they were saved. They even looked saved. They even tricked everybody else around them into thinking that they were saved. They thought they were legit. But at the end of the day, they proved by their own behavior that they were never saved in the first place. I think the key comes from the last verse, verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. A sow is just an adult female pig. I don't know why they didn't just say that in the ESV, but they didn't ask my opinion. You've heard the proverb, right? A dog returns to its own vomit. It's not a pretty picture. Hopefully you didn't just eat dinner, but it's true. But the dog this text is talking about is not our Phoebe Corgi. That's not the dog here. 
This is a scavenger street dog with fleas that literally everyone hated. That was never welcomed inside the house. Evil scavengers. But why does a dog return to its own vomit? Because it's in the dog's nature. Why does a pig, after getting all cleaned and bathed, run back into the mud? Because it's in her nature. Why did the false teachers proclaim a false heretical gospel? Because it was in their nature. They were never saved in the first place. Their behavior revealed that they never had a relationship with Christ. Well, there's a lot there, a lot in our text. So I just have one thought of application as we finish tonight. If spiritual deception is the worst kind of deception, if spiritual harm is the worst kind of harm, that should make any pastor, any Bible teacher tremble because leading someone astray spiritually will incur discipline from the Lord. We need to think twice before we start teaching the Bible because the standard of judgment is higher. It's exactly what James says in James 3 verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Ever heard that verse before? It's sobering, isn't it? If you're thinking about going to Bible college, you're thinking about going into ministry, you're thinking about teaching kids in one way club, don't forget James 3 verse 1. You'll be judged with greater strictness. And certainly this message applies to me. It was not an easy message to write this week. Because frankly, after reading James 3.1 and our text in 2 Peter, maybe I should go find a different occupation because this is intimidating. Because those who teach scripture will be judged at a higher standard. Now, James isn't talking about the great white throne judgment separating believers from unbelievers. He's talking about the Bema judgment where believers are evaluated for their faithfulness. It's a hard verse. Now, this might disappoint some of you, but don't worry, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to keep teaching. But yes, there's greater strictness and judgment, but at the same time, I also see the incredible reward of teaching God's word. There's not too many things in my life that bring more joy than watching the light bulbs click on a Monday night or seeing people dive into scripture for the first time, or watching you bring friends to church or sharing the gospel with family members. Not many things bring me more joy than serving alongside you in Mexico and watching the Lord use your gifts for his kingdom. Yes, the rubric will be tougher on Judgment Day, but I'm convinced that I experience great joy because I have a front row seat to the power of God's word. But... I'm not the only one who teaches the Bible in this room. I'm actually convinced that every person who desires to be a genuine, authentic follower of Christ is a Bible teacher. If you're going to serve in one way club, you're going to teach the Bible. If you're going to lead a young adult small group, you're going to teach the Bible. If you are going to be a parent someday, you're going to teach the Bible if you're going to mentor or disciple and help somebody take the next step in their walk with Christ, you're going to teach the Bible. If you're going to share the gospel and evangelize, you're going to teach the Bible. No one's off the hook from being a Bible teacher. 
So what does that mean? Does that mean all of us to just throw in the towel and say, well, I guess I'm not evangelizing. I guess I'm not serving in G180 anymore. The bar's too high. No. We've got to be cautious. We've got to do our homework. We've got to be good students of the word. And we've got to be humble. Always asking that the spirit might speak through us. Let's pray. Father, 2 Peter's been good, but it's been hard. Um, A lot of things for us to chew on and think about tonight. And if there's anything that I said tonight that wasn't true, that was not in line with the spirit of this text and your Holy Spirit, may that be erased from our mind. Um, But whatever was true and honorable and lovely and commendable and excellent, May we dwell and think on those things. May we talk about those things. You know the sins that we brought in the door tonight, things that we might be struggling with. You know that we might be dealing with gossip or lust or poor motivation. Father, expose those sins and allow us to take a step of turning away from them and toward you. And may we be discerning, recognizing false teaching, pointing it out, and following the truth of the gospel. As we take time to dialogue in our small groups tonight, uh, we do ask that uh, you might guide this time. In Jesus' name, amen.